Katya. And I'm Rin. And we're here at Commonwealth Holistic Herbalism with our birds <laughs> in Boston, Massachusetts. And on the internet everywhere, thanks to the power of the podcast. Woo! Yeah. Okay, listen, it's like a cabillion degrees and we have a ceiling fan in the living room and it's quiet. So we were like, we can be in the living room with the fan on and the it won't be loud on the podcast. But the thing is that the birds are in here. And so sometimes when we're quiet and then start talking, then they start talking, too. Yeah, sorry. They're going to squeak at you a little bit. But um, <laughs> in exchange for that, we are a little bit less warm. <laughs> yeah, that works. That works for us. I hope it works for you, too. Well, OK, uh, look, we've that, been that's away. That's so topical. <laughs> yes. Um, hi, everybody. It's nice <laughs> to talk to you again. We've been gone for a little minute there. Yeah, we have been really spotty with podcast production lately, and we are very sorry. Um, it's because we are moving. Uh, we are moving to our forever home, and I'm very excited about that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, we've been we've been rescued. We've rescued each other. Ah, yes. yes, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> we've been adopted. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, um, we've been really busy uh, with that and getting that organized and getting ourselves ready and. Oh, it's happening soon, so it's very exciting. Yeah. Um, and in addition, of course, we've also been making a bunch of video content for our online educational programs and courses. Yes, and because of the laws of physics, that means that we've been making fewer podcasts. Yes. Because there's only so much you can do in a it's been happening. time but, space. But yes. don't worry, we have a plan. We do have a plan. We have a plan. We have a couple of plans that are going to uh, unfold, actually. The first one is we've got a series of episodes for you starting today, about the changing relationship that we herbalists are having with our herbs, whether we like it or not, because yeah. of climate change. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we need to know what is happening, because that's going to affect how we practice. So this is going to be a short series on that topic, and a couple of uh, particulars about that, and, and some new information we've been looking at and coping with. Yeah, and like not just, oh no, everybody... Climate change, it's terrible, but like very specific things that you can do to um, make this situation more sustainable for the plants and for you. Yeah. You know, you can't really solve any problems until you identify them. It can be hard to identify uh, specific problems when it seems like it's happening everywhere all at the same time. Um, so, yeah, trying to get a little more clarity on that. That's what we're going to do for the next few episodes. And then we're going to replay a couple of our very favorite episodes from the whole 195 run yeah. uh, of, of the Holistic Herbalism podcast. Yeah. There um, are a few that are real favorites for us that yeah. um, we would love for you to hear again because we think they're really important. Yeah. Yeah. And then once we're officially moved, we'll be back to a regular production schedule. We promise for sure. <laughs> for real this time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we will be finishing our really long series about the herbs on our apothecary shelves. Uh, of course, they'll be on new shelves. There's going to be some new shelves. Yeah, it's going to be very, very exciting. I really can't tell y'all how excited we are to finally be able to put down some roots. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. But we'll talk more about that soon no doubt. Well, around the time when you're starting to think, hmm, perhaps a pumpkin spice latte would be just exactly the thing for today, 
that's about when we'll be back. Yes. And um, if you are one of the people who never, ever says that a nice pumpkin spice latte would be nice, uh, don't worry. You'll know that we're back because everyone else will be having a pumpkin spice latte. So (laughs) that's how you'll know. Um, But like we said, there this series had this is going to be today's episode. And then there are two more in this series that we're going to talk about. Um, talking about how we can improve our sustainability, how we can be responsive to what's going on um, as herbalists to to what's going on for the plants that we work with. Um, And then a couple of old favorites and then pumpkin spice and we're back. Yeah. Yeah. That's what. Okay. Uh, One other note here before we get rolling. Are you already a student in our online courses? I think you should be. <laughs> I hope you are. I hope so. And if not, then you should consider it. Yes, that is the best way to support this podcast. Um, because when you enroll in our online courses, you not only support our work and, you know, I mean, it takes... And, and you receive our work. You receive our work, yeah. <laughs> it takes about a full day to put together one episode of the podcast. Um, so... When you, you might be like, hey, we want to support that. Um, And lots of people ask how they can support the podcast. So when you enroll in our courses, you not only support that work, but also you get an entire cool herb course, which since you're here listening to this podcast, you probably would really like. I think so. And in addition, you get access to our twice weekly live Q&A sessions. So if you've ever been listening to the pod and thinking, hey, wait a minute. I wish I could ask Katya and Rin this thing. Well, you can, live and in person. Because <laughs> everyone everyone who is enrolled in any of our online courses gets access to the live Q&A sessions. So what are you waiting for? Yeah, come hang out with us. <laughs> okay, right. really the last thing this time. Uh, <laughs> before do... we get started. Yes, yes, before we get to today's topic, we have a reclaimer. Uh, This is where we remind you that we are not doctors, we are herbalists and holistic health educators. The ideas discussed in this podcast do not constitute medical advice. No state or federal authority licenses herbalists in the United States. So these discussions are for educational purposes only. We want to remind you that good health doesn't mean the same thing for everyone. Good health doesn't exist as an objective standard. It's influenced by your individual needs, experiences, and goals. So keep in mind that we're not attempting to present a single dogmatic right way that you should adhere to. Everybody's body is different. So the things that we're talking about may or may not apply directly to you, but we hope that they'll give you some new information to think about and some ideas to research further. Finding your way to better health is both your right and your own personal responsibility. This doesn't mean you're alone on the journey, and it doesn't mean that you're to blame for your current state of health, but it does mean that the final decision when you're considering any course of action whether it's discussed on the internet or prescribed by a physician, is always your choice to make. Yeah. All right. So uh, let's let's all cheer up with some climate change news. <laughs> That's how this works, right? Yeah. No, maybe not. But how about like build resolve or wait? No, listen. Get directed. Yeah. Climate change is happening. It is. It is happening, and it doesn't do. And like, it can be depressing to talk about it, but it's just a thing that's happening. And so I think that this is, this doesn't need to be depressing because 
um, like I said, we are going to talk really specifically about how we as herbalists can adapt, not just adapt our practices so that we're like less affected by these changes, but also so that we can adapt our behaviors so that we are supporting the plants and helping them to adapt through these changes. And right. I think that's the reason that climate change discussions are often de depressing because we get this idea that like we're doomed, there's nothing we can do about it. Um, everything is at such a high level, there's nothing that one person can do to have an impact, like all these different things that truly are depressing. But that's not the case here. There's a great deal that we can do even as individuals um, to make a, a very specific impact. So yeah, so, so we're, we're not depressed. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that, that, you know, uh, directing your attention to a particular direction is, is really helpful for that. And, and as herbalists, we think a good way to turn is toward the herbs, the actual growing plants when mm. we're thinking about climate change. It matters for us because it's, you know, it's kind of hard to be an herbalist if you don't have herbs. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, we need to know how the drastic swings in weather that we've been seeing are impacting the ability of farmers to grow the plants that we work with and then impacting the growth of those plants in the wild too uh, because we need to respond to those changes both in terms of how we work with those plants and also in terms of what we can do uh, at any scale from one person to a community to you know let's get the whole planet organized together come <laughs> on uh, to help the plants survive and to thrive. So we've talked about sustainability before on the pod, um, and uh, I'm never the one who remembers the old episodes and the numbers. So this time, Rin helpfully put it, put the number into the notes for us. Um, <laughs> but it's episode. I just want to not take credit for saying that it's episode 169, herbalism and climate change, the plants, um, because you would be like, wow, this time Katya knew one. And I didn't. It didn't put that in there helpfully for me. <laughs> but, no worries. but look, that was part of the part of the last time we ran a little series on the effects of climate change on herbalism. And, you know, um, that particular episode, we were talking like today, just about the plants themselves. Um, previously, we'd been talking more about like what to do when wildfires come your way, mm -hmm. <laughs> flooding, and, and you know impacts in that in that perspective. Yeah, lots of windows onto the intersections between herbalism and climate change for sure. Yeah. yeah, this is something that is pretty much always on my mind. I think also always on your mind, and all y'all listening probably always on y'all's minds too. Um, but this morning, I was reading an article that had some pretty staggering statistics that I wanted to share, and there's a link in to the article in the show notes, mm -hmm. um, so you can find it there. Um, but this, uh, the information in this article. Uh, is from a harvest yield report that was written for a botanical industry group called Nutra Ingredients. Um, and you might not have known, but there are lots of these kinds of industry reports that come out every year. Yeah, I um, every every I think it's like September or maybe November. I get I get very excited, and then I post onto my personal Facebook about how ah yes the um, the the market report finally came out. And, <laughs> it's so nerdy. <laughs> yeah, and it's and it's it's the uh, the herbs in commerce report where they they talk about trends and changes in what's been popular this year versus previous years, and they've got these tables where they say here are the top forty uh, selling herbs in the mainstream market channel and the natural market channel, 
and uh, it's been it's really interesting actually. Like you can see the impacts of COVID on elderberry uh, purchasing mm-hmm. uh, over the last couple of years, and uh, a couple of other plants that were popularized in parts uh, because of the because of the pandemic. So you know, there's that kind of thing, and you know, we we often have a, a need to pause in a discussion like this and say, look, I'm not here to shill for the industry group. Good grief, All right? <laughs> Uh, or to you know to to defend like the the most enormous uh, companies out there uh, you know laundering their reputations through this kind of work or whatever because right. I know that that's happening yes right. we know that that's happening but look there is some really intriguing information uh, available through these kinds of groups and there aren't many other places to get it yeah, yeah. and the thing is that we we need the information actually like if you're if you're just, maybe you are the only herbalist you know in your community, or maybe you have like one herbal friend. And so your context for herbalism is just what you do and what maybe your your friend does. And um, you, there's no way for you to know the scale that a lot of this stuff is happening on um, if you don't have these kinds of reports. Like... Even if you have a big group of herbal friends, right. it, it's it's really kind of mind blowing to read some of these reports and to see, first of all, how much of the herbs that are harvested are actually going to the pharmaceutical industry. Like that's actually fascinatingly interesting. And mm. to see what herbs they're interested in, what herbs are they buying. <laughs> right. um, but then just to see, I mean, the scale on which herbs are being traded throughout the world. Yeah, including, you know, information about like, well, if you compare to 20 years ago, where you see the you see the curve uh, showing just like, like profits, you know, yeah. on, on sales of botanicals as supplements. And you're like, wow, that really is uh, spiking up very similarly to it you know, a year over year temperature curve. Yeah. It's just the hockey stick thing going on. So yeah. there's a, uh, and that's one of the important factors that we're trying to be aware of, you know, like part of that's driven by climate change. Part of that's driven by people who are not well served or dissatisfied with conventional medicine, you know, mm-hmm. um, or trying to protect themselves in, in whatever way that they can find. And so there is a correlation there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think also that, especially since today we're thinking in terms of stress on the plant populations, hmm. Um, and then seeing now granted most or mm, like the majority, maybe not all the way to most, but the majority of the plants in these reports, the majority of the plants that they're talking about in industry are, um, cultivated and not wild harvested. Not all of them. Some of them are being wild harvested and that is more problematic. Um, but the majority are cultivated. So we are talking about the agriculture industry and of course, now we can, if we really want to like, go galaxy brain on this, we can also be thinking about the conditions for workers and where these farms are located and um, the soil conditions in those locations and the irrigation conditions in those locations and all that other stuff. Like, There's so many things we can think about when we look at these kinds of reports. <laughs> but right now, it, it plays a role for for what we're thinking about today in terms of the stress on the populations and also in terms of this is where the data is, where we can see what's going on with the yield. And so this this particular um, article that references this report, the article is titled Botanical Yields Fall as Climate Change Affects Harvests. And 
we there's no way to have that data as individual herbalists in different places. Like we might notice right. it a little bit, but we to see it in the aggregate. Yeah, it helps you get to be a reading sense of the these scale. big reports. Yeah, you're right. right. Yeah. yeah. So this one, um, the write up about this came from August 17th from this year. So that's just a few days ago for us mm-hmm. uh, as we're recording. Uh, 2022 okay and this one mentions um, effects on chamomile and valerian as well as elderberry in this uh, write-up they noted that the chamomile harvest was down by as much as 40 percent and that what they're harvesting is often lower quality than what is typical or what's desirable Mm -hmm. the word that they were using to describe it in the report was earthier and that reflects an actual change in the taste and the color of your chamomile. And as you know, taste and color of chamomile and any other plant uh, are very important. They're, in a way, they're made up of the phytochemicals within that plant, right? What makes the calendula flower orange? Well, we've got carotenoids and some other pigments. Yellow? Yeah. Orange, yeah whatever. Yellow, yeah. orange? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What makes the chamomile flower smell chamomile you know? <laughs> um, it's a whole array of, of uh, different volatiles there and if the plant is stressed to the point that it can't adequately produce those or you know or that it's shifting its production to a different group of volatiles for what it for various i mean listen every chemical that the plant creates it's doing for its own purposes right like volatile oils they smell nice and they have a lot of function in the human bodies as, as do bitter compounds, as do mineral compounds, like all different things in the plant do different things in human bodies. But the plant is producing those things for its own benefit in response to its environment. Mm. And so when its environment changes, it produces different quantities, different ratios or entirely different phytochemicals. Mm. Um, and so when we see a change in the color of the plant, um, they're saying that um, the color this, this year is browner, last year also is browner. Um, and when we see a, ch- a change in the taste and they're describing it as earthier, what that's really telling us is that the phytochemical profile of the plant has shifted. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's, it's pretty much... It just, it feels very direct. It's like, yep, it was a lot hotter. There was drought and uh, the chamomile got kind of baked out, you know? <laughs> yeah. The, the green shifted towards yellow, towards brown, you know? The, yeah. the scent kind of cooked off a bit. Um, I'm not saying that that's a literal, you know, simple description of what was occurring here, but it's pretty much in that direction. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so this means that the actions that we expect from that batch of chamomile may or may not be present in the way that we expect. They might be stronger or weaker because of those shifts in the chemical makeup. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about those chemical shifts in a minute, but I want to share some more numbers. Um, this one is about valerian. And um, so valerian, when you when we work with valerian, most commonly it's the root um, that they work with in commerce. Uh, Rin has some aspirations to do cool things with valerian flowers. I like them. Yeah, but... I, I like them. I gotta grow some. But commercially, uh, hey, at our forever home... That's what? You're gonna get to. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's so exciting. Um, but uh, but the route that they're talking about for commercial purposes, since 2018, they there has been a reduction in the harvest by 800 pounds of dried root matter 
per acre. That is a ton of reduction. She's waiting. It's half a ton. It's it's about a it's ton, about half a, a ton. ton two thousand two thousand pounds. <laughs> it's whatever. A, it's about half a ton. Look, <laughs> but okay, we're joking because but, we're trying to diffuse the the freak out of per acre every acre everywhere that they're growing dry, of dried. That's not even fresh material. Like they're weighing that out dried, and it's coming in eight hundred pounds less per acre. I didn't even know you could get eight hundred pounds per acre of valerian, much less eight hundred pounds less. That's that's a lot less. That's bonkers. That's bonkers. I wish that they had included that as an overall percentage of total yield. Um, and they did not. It might be in the report somewhere, but it wasn't in the article. Hmm. And I couldn't I couldn't uh, access the actual report because there's a paywall. But that that's a ton. That's well, I mean, that's half a ton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They mentioned also that during this time that Valerian was becoming more popular and that demand was increasing so you know falling yields increasing demand not a great recipe really for anybody you know there's lots of different effects that are going to come from that uh one from a you know selfish human perspective is that prices are going to go up uh, well okay so that's selfish selfish quote unquote on the consumer side mm-hmm. but on the producer side when prices go up there's a lot of pressure there to either adulterate your product um, because your margins are so high that if you adulterate to increase to artificially increase your yield, you can make a lot of money. And so the pressure to actually do that becomes higher than if it was like a plant that didn't have quite so high demand. Mm-hmm. But also the pressure to take risks that are like to take agricultural risks that aren't sustainable for the plants, like to harvest um, plants that aren't fully mature or to um, maybe uh, use a fertilizer that is uh, not going to do great. Like it will produce larger roots, but maybe not be very good for the quality of the plant Mm -hmm. that's harvested. Um, and then there's pressure uh, for distributors to import from lower quality sources um, or to or to, to purchase lower quality sources, even if they're not imported, even if they're domestic. Right. Um, and so all of those pressures are playing in, in in this kind of environment where the supply is going down and the demand is going up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the, the the report there also mentioned there were year-over-year losses in the elderberry harvest, too, and also in pine bark. Pine bark is a little more popular in Europe than it seems to be in the U.S. Um, in particular, there's a few kind of well-known pine bark uh, supplements. Or yeah, like products. Extracts, you know, that are that are quite popular over that way. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, declining. And, you know, we're just looking there at valerian, chamomile, pine, elderberry, fairly different plants, you know, Um it's not like it's only affecting uh, aromatic flowers that like to grow in a field environment, you know, <laughs> or only affecting things like marshmallow root that want, right. you know, a damp environment or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So this is just one article about one report, um, and we can we can take this to be indicative of the larger scene, and that gives us um, a lot of information. So let's talk about what's going on here. 
Um, and then we will talk about what we can do about it. Yeah. So, you know, these kind of shifts are, let's say, at the beginning, they're problematic. They're bad for plants overall. And we're not just thinking about drought, but also, like, even shifts in, in the, the delivery of water. <laughs> um, so I'm thinking there of, like, places where instead of having fairly steady rain over a longer period of time, you get a bunch of drought and then a giant downpour all at once. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that we've been kind of feeling around here lately. Yeah, that that is going to contribute. First off, it's it's a lot of stress on the plant. It's not getting water when it needs it. When the water comes, it doesn't stay put. Like most of it runs off. But as it runs off, so do a lot of soil nutrients. Mm-hmm. Another thing that we had here this year um, and last year too is... In the beginning of the growing season, like in the germinating and seedling season, we had too much rain and too much cold. Yeah. And so that created a lot of rot situations. Well, some some seeds just didn't germinate um, because the conditions weren't right. And then the seeds rotted. So um, you had to reseed a bunch of stuff. And then maybe your seedlings were out, but they ended up with root rot because it was too cold and too wet and they never really could dry out. Um, so now you you lost your crop maybe before it even became a crop, like before it really even grew at all. So that's um, another kind of situation that can, like it isn't, it isn't just that people have no water. It's just that water and sun need to balance out and they're not balancing out right now. Yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, there can also be changes in the way that that affects insects that might prey on the plants or mm-hmm. just kind of interfere with their their growing habit and everything. Yeah. Yeah. So, the, again, this is just a way to say the plants are stressed uh, and that it's widespread. Yeah. Right? So an effect of that, um, of that stress, of that different availability for water, for nutrients, uh, or having them at the wrong time or, or things like that, that's going to change the way the plant grows and it's going to change the chemical profile that the plant produces. Um, we know that plants change their production of different chemistry all throughout the year, right? Even in a, a, an ideal growing season for that particular plant, it's going to produce more aromatics in the height of summer than it is kind of at the beginning of the season or at the end of its life. And we you know can that... know that for yourself. If you, like go out and check your catnip plant when it's like a little baby seedling and it's not really very established yet. Um, it's not going to be nearly as smelly as it's going to be when it is totally happy and it's the middle of July, you know? Yeah. And you know, for, for all, all plants, there's going to be variations here. Some of them you're going to be able to detect, you know, a lot of, a lot of our plant chemistry we can, uh, we can detect with our senses and that's important to our work as herbalists. Right. Um, but even there have been investigations into these things done through a laboratory and no noses involved, right? <laughs> but we're, we're going to say like, ah, yes, we have andrographis and it has this growing season. And at this time of the year, the andrographolide content is really high. So make sure you harvest it just at this moment. Mm-hmm. And then someone, you know, who's a little extra clever turns around and talks to the people who've worked with this plant for the longest and have some traditional knowledge and asks them when they harvest it. And it's usually just about exactly at that time. You know, (laughs) we see these connections and we think, ah, yes, this is good. Listen, Uh, because people (laughs) have been doing science for as long as there have been people, right? Right. Like 
yeah, now we have cool equipment that assists us in the doing of science, but yeah. we've always been doing science yeah. and they didn't have microscopes or whatever kind of spectrometers, but they said, huh, when I harvested on this day, that batch was really good and really yeah. effective. I'm going to do that again. Right. Or even, you know, uh, every time I feed people nettles that's harvested after it's flowered in late August, then uh, the people with kidney trouble come and complain to me about it. Or, mm -hmm. you know, like things that people have observed over a, over a longer period of time uh, and have, have come to understand about this. And then we can, again, look at it from another perspective and say, ah, yes, well, after the plant flowers, the nettle leaf makes more oxalate crystals and that can irritate your kidney, especially if it's already inflamed. Yeah. So, you know, we can, we can learn these things about our plants and they can shape our decisions about when to harvest and what kind of remedies to make and so on. But we can also gain some insight from that into the way that these uh, productions are going to change as the plant's growing cycle changes, as it responds to the changes in the climate, uh, in the changes in the, in the rainfall, in the, the spikes of the heat and when they come and how long they last, mm. you know? Um, so we're going to have to expect those kind of changes. And it's not to say that we have the capacity now to predict all of them and know exactly what to do. We're going to need to be agile as we respond to this and, and observe it through time, including through the use of our senses. Yeah. <laughs> right? And it's, it may not be reliably predictable from year to year even. We can't even necessarily say, oh, my... Um, my plants changed in this way this year. I should expect that from now on. Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> right. No. Yeah. And, and you know, one manifestation of that could be, I, I think, I, like, from the, from, the, <laughs> from the world of looking at plants and looking at varieties of plants and looking for the biggest, most beautiful, most perfect tomato... And like that impulse in a lot of um, of agriculture or of, of like plant commerce and how there is an extension of that into herbalism and how like when we look at, say, a field of potatoes and they all get attacked by a blight mm. and then someone says, yeah, but uh, we should remember that in the Andes Mountains on every mountain and on every hill and every ledge and at different altitudes, there would be a different variety of the potato and some of them could be resistant to the blight and some of them could, right. you know, survive a different problem that happens at another time of the year or whatever. Right. And so there to say, like, we don't necessarily need to strive to have the most perfect basil or like the exact, uh, you know, lineage descendant of Tulsi or whatever it is. <laughs> um, but that local var variation is going to be really important there. Mm -hmm. um, and continuing to kind of like protect that and to shepherd that and help that to, to evolve uh, is going to be part of our jobs. Yeah. To, to evolve, to like protect and shepherd and steward the plants that thrive in your area and to resist the temptation to monocrop the plants that thrive in your area. Right. Right. Like to Both. continue the variety, even as you steward the one that seems to be strongest in your, in your current situation, because as, as things change, 
then the variety that is the strongest may also change. And so yeah. continually planting multiple varieties or continually planting uh, just in general, great diversity in, in your growing space, wherever that is. Yeah. Um, and that includes at all levels, right? That's like from the person growing the plant to the people who are making medicine out of it, to the people who are suggesting or guiding people towards these remedies and then getting feedback about which ones work the best. Like everybody mm -hmm. has to get it. Like all of the herbalists, the different types and like specialties of herbalists need to be involved in this work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think we've kind of detoured into solutions when we were trying to just give you a list of scary problems. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> The solutions are coming. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so other problems that happen, of course, is raising prices. And we were talking about that when we were talking about the valerian, that um, raising prices isn't just a bummer for the people who are trying to avoid, afford what they want or mm -hmm. what they need, but it also puts pressure on the industry um, to degrade the quality of what we can purchase mm -hmm. um, and in by various mechanisms, either through adulteration or through um, sourcing from lower quality sources. Mm. Um, and this is why um, I'm, I'm going to do my mountain rose herbs thing. And I know that, you know, lo local is awesome and all that stuff. And I am in favor of it. And sometimes as a person who is in favor of all that stuff to be like, hey, you know what you should do is you should support this big producer or distributor. Well, actually, Mountain Reserves is both. They they also produce a lot of things themselves. Um, but the flip side of that is that when there is a large company who is doing work with great integrity and who is responsive to it, to their community, then that needs to be supported because some things can only be done at the large scale. Um, and Mountain Rose is really using their position as a large supplier for the forces of good. And they're reinvesting in sustainability. They're creating. Um, we did a podcast about rhodiola. And no, I can't remember the number because I can't. We'll get it in the show notes. That was part <laughs> of our interview with Sean. With, uh, yeah, Sean Daniel. Um, and the like, because they are large, they can afford to support like new avenues of sustainability that require upfront investment. And, and require that investment over a series of years before there's any payoff. And so, so yes, support local, and that's critically important. But also for the things you can't get locally, then, you know, for the things that you don't know the grower, then Mountain Rose is really good. And the reason here that I'm promoting that, and, and they're not paying me to say this. When they do, we tell you. Um, <laughs> but um, but the yeah. thing is that their, their staunch company policy is that they would rather run out of something than source lower quality or source unsustainable material. Irresponsibly, unethically, like with a lot of these adjectives all at the same time, like right. lined up to each other and, and paying attention to the differences. I, right. <laughs> yeah. And they're continually improving in it. And the other thing is that you might have noticed recently that they are drastically expanding their tincture selection. And that is intentional because tincturing is a way that, that you can provide more medicine with less plant matter. And so they intentionally are creating high quality tinctures so that they can consume less 
plant and so that they can make more available to people um, in a more sustainable manner. So, so again, like uh, Mountain Rose is not the only company out there doing good things, but they're a very yeah, good example know, of this. Right, right. Yeah. Look for your B Corps. <laughs> yeah. Uh, look for your, look for, again, always starting with what's local and, and what you can have a most, most direct connection to. Yes, right. absolutely. And then especially as things become less available or if, if because of climate pressure, your local source for something is no longer viable and you're thinking, well, where am I going to get this now? It, it's going to be hard to find it. So if you don't know, Mountain Rose is a safe place to go because we know what their standards are. We know that they are consistently listening to community feedback and consistently trying to improve the situation. So, um, that's my not a commercial commercial for yeah. Mountain Rose, but but <laughs> I, I I think it's I guess I guess I just say it's important to include because it doesn't do any good to say oh you have to be careful that the sources for your plants aren't adulterated and then not say hey if you don't know how to do that here's a place to start right. because it can be very intimidating a lot of times when you are purchasing plant material on the internet or you're not able to get it from people who you know and you can go to the farm and talk to the growers which is always the ideal situation but sometimes you can't do that and a lot of times you don't really feel like you have the accessibility into different companies that you might be buying from um you should always try like like try to talk to the owner and whatever but if you feel stuck and you're like, well, now I just have no options. I don't know what to do. I don't want to leave you with no options. I want to risk sounding like a cheerleader for a big company <laughs> and, and, and but give you a place to turn so that you... Um, right. And then, yeah. and then again, the other reason that we bring this up is just to, to keep in mind the, the, the scales of operation that we are talking about here. You know, um, there are larger botanical industry companies than Mountain Rose. There yeah, are that's true. Supplement companies that that, you know, are are moving and and churning through a lot of, of plant material out there and not all of them are very scrupulous about it. So uh, Yeah, there are some that are wildly unscrupulous about it. Yeah. And yeah. So we're trying to raise these issues and just be aware of them and, and again to connect those back through this chain of events to it was wicked hot and it was wicked dry this summer and mm -hmm. it's going to be next summer and it's going to be the one after that and we're trying to understand the effects of these things at all of these different scales from that plant to that field to the community yeah. all the way out to to that whole planet so so all right like we said uh there are some things we can do about this and uh let's Let's give you some ideas. So the, yes. first, <laughs> the, the first one here might sound a little counterintuitive or, uh, I don't know, it might feel like it's out of left field for a moment, but we're going we're gonna to get you there. This first suggestion is do not hoard herbs. Yeah. Yeah. So hoarding is actually wasteful. Um, it's, it's not, it's not preser preservatory. Um, <laughs> I mean, right? There's there is such a human impulse to squirrel things away for winter. Um, that is the squirrel part of the human impulse, I guess. Mm. Um, and 
that is like that's at a DNA level, right? That that squirrels hoard things for the winter. That is what they do, and nobody judges them about it. That's what squirrels do. Listen, there is a part of being a human that is winter is coming. I better be prepared or famine is coming. I better be prepared or whatever else. Right. Part of that just is being human. So we already have that tendency kind of built in. And it, and, and that tendency can be. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what the right word is uh, like directed or buffered or contained by culture and by community mm-hmm. but when your culture and your community don't teach you how to do that then it's very easy to go pretty far off the rails you know right um, lots of lots of herb teachers have identified this in different ways i always enjoy howie brownstein's description of it as herb lust and he's yeah. usually talking about that in the context of like trying to take people out on a plant identification walk and suddenly everybody's grabbing flowers and putting them in their pockets and mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> trying to take them home and you kind of have to lay out some rules and uh, and to be like, listen, you know, that's not what we're here for right now. And, and when we are, you'll definitely know. And there will be a lot of other rules about how we go about doing that. Right. Uh, because that's how we we get a hold of that urge. And yeah. and that includes especially for people who are new to herbalism or like in the like most excited exploratory phases of their herbalism where they want to try everything and they want to have a lot of everything and they want to have a room full of herbs up to the ceiling. Mm. And are they going to need you know, a gallon of uh, Lobelia tincture this year. <laughs> or, probably not. <laughs> or this decade. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Probably not, though. Yeah. Right? So we, we start with the warning to not hoard because we recognize the tendency and how a lot of it grows out of just the delight and the joy of, of like, having herbs and also the feeling of, like, I've got some medicine here. This is great. We're going to be safe. We're going to be protected because I've got it. And, you know, there's also, there's this disbalance, kind of like how we have invented so many kinds of sugar that are each progressively sweeter, that now it's hard when we come across bitter flavors because we're so accustomed to things that are so sweet, like so disproportionately sweet. And so, like, humans always liked sweet things, but... um but as we have become able to create things that are sweeter and sweeter and sweeter and sweeter, like our kind of innate urge towards, ooh, I like that sweet thing, has been really thrown out of balance. And I see that here too. Like humans have that tendency to say, I'm going to need this later. I'm going to save it. But, but our communities have been so damaged and lately I've been learning about um, the different kinds of community support that are part of um, Islam. And there are different like prescribed times when you give to support different things in the community. And um, I was reading about it because of wanting to get involved with supporting refugees um, here in Massachusetts. And one of the places that had a lot of information about how to do that was a local Islamic center. And so part of that education on the website also included different ways that you could use your different prescribed giving 
um, to like support refugees. And I was like, wait, that's interesting. I want to learn more about that part of, of this culture. And so I was digging into it. And I think that, you know, the more that I was reading about it, the more that I was like, wait a minute, many cultures through religion or through other cultural aspects had this kind of idea. Um, I even think about like the Scandinavian ideas around hospitality Mm -hmm. and um, like, it doesn't really matter how much you hate the person. Uh, If they show up at your house, you have to feed them because it's really cold, right? Like that's where a lot of that, those things came from. Like, because if you didn't, like you could die overnight in the, like you had to house people, you had to feed them because they could die overnight in the cold. And, (laughs) and so even if you didn't get along, like just for the sake of the survival of the community, you, you know, and so, so you think about these kinds of traditions in so many different places, but in our modern life, our communities have really been amputated. Like we, we don't, we don't have time for community. We don't have the resilience in our communities that we used to have basically because everyone is working all of the time. And, and so it's like, there's no energy left at the end of the day to create these community communities of resilience and communities of support in whatever way it happened. I happen to be reading about it in terms of um, Muslim traditions, but it, you know, the, many, many cultures have these ideas and they're dying. And so those ideas are the things that told us here's how to direct the human instinct to to save things for the winter and oops, you have saved more than you needed. And we're going to redistribute that to the people who need it. It's human to save stuff. It's community to redistribute that saved stuff to the people who don't have enough. But when we are humans without community, all we are is saving bodies and there's no redistribution. There's no way for us to say, oh, you don't have any. And look, at I have all of this. Like, let me share some with you so that you have what you need also. Like the trees in the forest. The trees in the forest. Yeah. yeah. A little extra sugar for that tree that's having a rough time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. It's like, it's, you know... Every other species, they all, you were just talking about mouse song and how mouses sing to their, mice sing to their babies. And yeah, whatever, the, like, the chirpy little songs that we can't hear because they're just, you know. It's because every, everyone sings to their but babies. Do. The birds yeah. do, the mice do, the whales do, the penguins do. Everybody sings to their babies and everybody provides for their communities. Even the trees, you know, like that, that is in, um the secret life of trees where they're talking about how if one tree is sick, the other trees will feed it sugar through the root systems. And like it, but it's just like modern industrial humans who have just completely lost that half of us. Like one half is save up the stuff that we're going to need through the winter. And the other half is spread it around. So that the whole community survives through the winter. And that half has been amputated. Mm. 
And now we just live in this society of, I've got to get mine. And mine is as much as I can possibly get. And all the rest of y'all are screwed, suckers. And wow, we, sorry. So, so <laughs> we resist the off, urge to hoard. This we started off as recognize that the urge to hoard is natural. Don't, don't shame yourself because of that. Um, right. The urge to hoard, hoard is natural, but it is rebuild the, the part about the community. Right. And that's what make, that's what can bring the sense of security so that you don't feel the need to hoard in quite that way anymore. Right. And so I don't want all of this to be negative. And I do want to make it clear that it might be difficult to know what your actual needs are uh, right out of the gate. And so this is something that you're going to kind of continue to evaluate as you go as you go along. Oh, I didn't actually need the entire two pounds of blackberry root. I <laughs> Uh, I did, in <laughs> fact, need more than a pound of catnip. Right. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, so you got to assess your needs realistically. And again, that's something that will evolve and change as time goes by. Um, and I do mean realistically, right? Like if you are running uh, an herbalism free clinic and you have, you know, 30 or 40 people coming through every month and you're giving away bags of tea and foot wash soaks and other kinds of stuff and like all of this yeah, that's then, not hoarding <laughs> then your your realistic need is substantially different um, from somebody who's taking care of themselves and their dog and a couple of their friends in the in the apartment building right, right. yeah or like if you are intentionally setting yourself up as um as community support right you're like yep. okay you know, I bet we're going to have another round of COVID this year. And so I am intentionally preparing um, and I am letting all my friends know and I am creating like uh, care packages and I'm right. That's not hoarding. That yeah. is doing the work. So so do not hoard is not the same as don't use any herbs, mm -hmm. you know, not use, but, you know, don't don't have any herbs. Um, it is don't don't take more than you need and then like eventually they go bad and mm. now, now nobody gets to use them so right right and you know uh that kind of goes along with um being attentive to what's most abundant uh and so that leads us to our next point here is to say let's get smart about invasive plants mm -hmm. some of those invasive plants out there are filling gaps that need to get filled uh, so we can demand some more nuance about how invasive plants are managed and the way that we think about them and the way we talk about them. Our position at this particular podcast is that plants are allowed to move around. Um, <laughs> that, yes. uh, that the idea of an unspoiled wilderness is uh, racist and colonialist nonsense, you know, yeah. uh, that plant populations have been managed by humans on this continent for a really long time before colonizers ever got here. And for that matter, plant populations were managed traditionally in Europe and in Asia and lots of other places other, as yeah. well. You know? Yeah, there's um, really no excuse. Like, it's okay to manage plant populations. Right. We don't have to have this idea that there needs to be, like, some kind of unspoiled thing to protect. We need to, first off, we need to protect everything. Like, we need to we need to make space in to, our policies for the, the survival of the ecosystem. And to understand that protection does not mean that we wall things off and then we say that nobody is supposed to walk around in there. Right. It's not imprisonment. Wear shoes, you know, like it's, <laughs> yeah. Right. The, the protection is going to be most, 
pervasive and lasting if it means that people have an ongoing relationship with that wilderness and with those plants and with those animals and with the entire ecosystem right in all all of its nuance yeah Right. That's what we're looking for. So, you know, when we when we look at, at invasive plants, a lot of times, the reason we're using this framework is a lot of times it's like, oh, well, they're invading. They're coming in from somewhere else to a place they don't belong and they must be chased away and killed off and all of that. With pesticides, I mean, herbicides and yeah. 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 Um, but all change is not necessarily bad. And we can get some, again, some nuance and some different perspectives on those invasive herbs. And we can make sure that the needs of the ecosystem that we live in are being met and recognize that sometimes an invasive plant is the one that can do that job. Yeah, as the climate changes, some plants who were who were filling a role in the ecosystem, in the community of the plant populations, are no longer able to thrive. But the job they were doing still needs to be done. And a plant that comes in who is also good at that job yeah, maybe we call that plant, maybe that plant is identified as invasive, but right now it's also lending a helping hand. Mm. And so I think that if we can put more nuance into the way that we think about invasive plants, and when there's a plant that comes in and really does damage to the ecosystem, that's one thing, but changing the face of the ecosystem is not damage as long as the pollinators still have what they need and the soil still has what it needs and the waterways still have what they need. Right. and Yeah, we, we want to try to protect and sustain existing uh, so-called native plant populations as much as possible. Absolutely, mm-hmm. every last degree of it, yes. Um, but I think that the most important part of that is is going to dovetail directly with looking at invasive differently, and it's it's noticing that the invasive plants come in where people have disrupted territory. Yes, it's like where they <laughs> where they arrive. It's where they come from. They thrive in anthropogenic habitats. That's the fancy way to say it, mm. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. And so, yeah, we do need to understand our impacts on all these different ecosystems and see the invasive th- uh, bloom as as a part of that. Uh, and not respond by saying, oh, oops, let me kill it and hide the evidence of what I've, <laughs> what I've, what I've accomplished in this area, right? Right. Like, it's not the most productive response here. And even when we establish that a particular plant has moved into an ecosystem and it is ne- it is not playing a role and it's taking up space that is needed by a plant who could have a supporting role in that ecosystem, then we're going to get further if we manage that plant without chemicals, right? If we dump a bunch of chemicals on it, then we're just pushing the ecosystem out of balance even further. It's more work to do it manually and and to really like replace it with another plant who will thrive and fill the role that needs to be filled in the ecosystem. That's more work. But on the other hand, um, it's more successful. Yeah, if we had a eco core, you know, like a jobs core situation, yeah, we could go in, but it was all eco jobs and like that'd be cool. Yeah, that sounds cool to me. I don't know. It's a lot of manual labor. There's problems. I don't know. There's yeah. Okay. There's lots of there are problems. But listen, towns. Your town already has a crew of people who are employed to do this work, and you can get involved in how that work happens. You can, you can first, okay, it's going to take learning, but you can learn about the, the plants that are coming in 
the ones who are playing supportive roles in the ecosystem versus the ones who are not playing supportive roles, instead of just looking at it's crowding out a native species, looking at the whole picture, and then you can present that at your town meetings. You can present that to the Department of Public Works. You can form a partnership about how will our town manage the wild plant populations and what do we take into consideration when we're identifying invasive species that need to be controlled? Some of them will still need to be controlled, but we can be nuanced about the parameters that we use to evaluate which ones that is and evaluate the methods that we want to use to control them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's kind of an extension of trying to be a conscious steward, um, you know, this is looking beyond land that you so you supposedly own, right? That's mm -hmm. not the only place that you can be thinking in terms of stewardship, right? So, like, right. like she's saying here, you know, to talk to owners of public, uh, sorry, owners of land or uh, town boards for public lands or wh whether that's a city or a state or whatever else. Or like a trust, say, like, what's going you on know, for, whatever. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and like you said, forming groups and, and clubs and, like, literally carrying water and you know, maybe shading some plants, protecting habitat, you know, all mm -hmm. these kinds of things. Maybe maybe there's some Greenpeace work to be involved in some of that a little bit. <laughs> I don't know. Listen, <laughs> even, if, even if your town has decided that purple loosestrife, for example, is it was one of my favorite plants that gets identified as invasive. Oh, autumn olive, too. I'm, I have yeah. a lot of them, actually. Even if your town, you know, says, okay, we're going to change our policy on purple loosestrife and we're actually going to let purple loosestrife come in that doesn't or, or we're going to stop chemically trying to restrict the purple loose drive that doesn't mean that you're not necessarily going to manage it at all i mean you manage mint in your garden too but but you can manage that population and then you can also identify this native population is is struggling and so why is it struggling oh because it's too hot what can we do to help, or it's not getting enough water, or it's this or it's that. What can we do to help create a microclimate for, for that native plant population to improve its ability to survive? And that might be shade screens. They make shade tarps that are basically just tarps with, a, with like a very loose weave so that there's holes. And the and it will you can get percentages right like you can get a tarp that will block twenty percent of the sun or forty percent of the sun or sixty percent of the sun, and maybe you have a native population that needs some shade structures to reduce the the stress of too much sun or maybe it needs more water and so you organize a watering schedule, um, you know whatever it happens to be this. It, the point is just it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Yeah. Right. We can we can support our natives. We can support the invasives who are performing functions in our communities. Um, and we don't have to call them invasives. We can call them plants. We can just call <laughs> them plants. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, you know, to extend on that, we can pay. We can be looking and learning who's thriving near us, you know. So that can involve expanding in the way that you work with a plant that might be kind of familiar, but maybe got a little pigeonholed. Uh, mm -hmm. Perhaps, you know, uh, your your introduction to mugwort was, oh, this is an herb that's really good for when the, the menstrual cycle is kind of sluggish and uh, it can help that blood to flow. Maybe that was 
kind of all that you remembered about it. And so that's the only <laughs> thing you ever think of for Mugwort. But if you maybe look back at your Materia Medica lessons and you check out a couple other things, you might find that there's a lot of different ways you can work with Mugwort. Uh, some that you kind of skipped over the first time you were learning mm. about it, right? Yeah. Um, I really love to work with Mugwort actually for mental and emotional health. And specifically in cases that are brain fog plus something, right? So if it's like brain fog plus depression, oh my goodness, that is such a good time for mugwort. Or brain fog plus intrusive thoughts. Or brain fog plus anxiety that makes it difficult to focus. Um, all of those are places where... I love to work with mugwort. Usually I like to add a little juniper in there too, just A, because it tastes great, but also like to give it just a little extra kick. Um, but mugwort has so much mental health activity stuff going on. It has so many actions in the digestive system. It is, you know, like even just in terms of circulatory stimulation, you get that too. There's so much you can do with mugwort. And then even if you think about it topically, have you ever considered mugwort as an, a topical antimicrobial for wound care? Because let me tell you, yes, it absolutely can help with that. <laughs> and right now we're in a drought. We just actually got our drought level elevated one more level. Um, and, uh, they project it for another, we've been in a drought for six weeks and they project it for another many weeks here. Um, and I'll tell you, the mugwort is thriving. We have mugwort in our actual garden. Um, we have not irrigated our garden. I did carry a little bit of water for the catnip, but otherwise we haven't watered our garden at all this year. Um, and the origaron was Fine. it did great <laughs> and the mugwort is gorgeous and if you look at the mugwort you wouldn't even know that there was a drought it's not it's not wilting it's yeah. not, it just it looks fantastic so finding these plants and saying like hold on you do not seem to care that there's a drought at all in fact you don't even seem to have noticed and then saying well geez it's you know i only really know one way to work with you is there another thing is there uh, are there other ways I can work with you? Because clearly you're doing fine right now. The more that we can work with those plants that are thriving locally, and the more the more creatively that we can work with them, the more that we take pressure off the plants that are struggling. And if we don't harvest as much of the plants that are struggling, that means there's more to create seed and hopefully to be stronger next year or mm -hmm. whatever. Yeah. Yeah. A piece of this uh, that can help a lot is to grow your own and you can do it pretty much anywhere. You know, we're big advocates for just getting some five gallon buckets and putting some soil in them and you can move them around to try different places for light exposure and shade and water and all of that uh, for a plant where you're not sure where you want to put it down yet. Um, or if you can't, if you can have just a porch or a fire escape or something, mm -hmm. Um, you can you can do that pretty well. And I, I want to actually mention one other, I'm going to interrupt for a second, to mention one other option that you might not think of. Ask other people. If you have a neighbor who has a lawn, ask them if you can grow a garden in their lawn. And then just grow half of it for them. 
and half of it for you. Um, you you might be surprised to know that, especially around New England, most of the small herb producers, like the the actual growers of herbs here in New England, are growing on rented land. And most of them do not own their land. Some do. But most of them are renting land. You would be so surprised at how many places are available um, to to rent land or to have a, a piece of land for like a small, a, a gardenable part of land available to you. And it's not just community gardens. So if you don't have a lawn, just don't be dismayed. Just get really creative. And if your town doesn't have community gardens, that okay let's go to town hall and listen town hall is there for exactly this purpose so head on down and propose a community garden and you know it's no different than the people that propose a dog park and the people right. that propose a this and a that and a whatever propose a community garden and um anyway there are lots of ways so don't don't be dismayed if you are renting and you don't have access to the dirt mm. um that that you're renting is on yeah yeah and you can ask other people about seeds as well um you know look around your neighborhood if somebody has a great bunch of basil or tulsi growing around and you know ask them if they've got some seeds to share Mm -hmm. um you can also get seeds from wild plants instead of harvesting those wild plants you don't really need a lot of seed uh, to get you started and then you can grow your own and have a nice big harvest next year Mm. um so if you harvest some seeds this year, those will be ready for you, you know? And with a lot of wild plants, you can pretty much just grab the seeds and put them right in your garden, right when you harvest and let them hang out there over the winter. You might not need to do anything special with them. Um, you know, I mean, make sure that they don't get eaten if they are the tasty kind of seeds. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, especially if there's plants that are thriving right now around you, um, you can just grab some seeds and just plop them down in a, in a bucket of dirt and they will grow. Try to mimic the place where you found them. So if it's a little bit shady or totally sunny or whatever, try to create that sort of situation um, at your home or wherever you are planting them. And don't hoard seeds, right? Like if there is a... Um, a stand of whatever, a stand of motherwort. And you say, oh, I'm going to get some seeds and plant my own motherwort. But then you take all of the seeds of all of the plants that were growing there. Well, you might as well have just harvested those plants because it can't reproduce now. Um, and you don't, you never need as many seeds as you think you're going to need. So just take a little bit. Like if there's however many plants, just take two thirds of the seeds from one plant. That's it. That will actually be enough for you um, to get, to get the plants established in a place where you can steward them and you can harvest them the following year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. All right. Another suggestion is to look for synonyms, synonyms. Hey, wait a minute. <laughs> so what does that mean? Well, what if I can't get my hands on any nettle right now? well, perhaps I can find or grow some dandelions instead. Mm. And if there's no elderberry to be found this year because uh, the market sales increased another 37%. Plus the harvest is down (laughs) however many percent. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So if that happens, then what can we do with the local staghorn sumac berries? Mm -hmm. How do they compare? How do they stack up? 
fairly well, actually. Mm. They compare fairly well. Yeah. Um, think about all the herbs that you can't live without. And then think about why. Why is that herb so important for you? And like, what are the actions that that herb performs in your body that you need? And then use that information to help you either find an herb that is a synonym for you or to formulate, like maybe, maybe you really can't live without chamomile. And so there's no herb that is exactly like chamomile, but you can like put a couple herbs together to get the kinds of effects that you need that you turn to chamomile for. Sure. You can do it for all kinds of different herbs. I wonder if you could formulate a synonym for cinnamon. You just wanted to say synonym and cin cinnamon next to it. That's actually harder than little, I thought it was going to be. Not the easiest one. That was actually hard to say. <laughs> but actually also, like, what would that be? Like, we would need cardamom. If we have allspice, that makes it kind of easy. Ginger. If you had ginger. Oh, listen, it's ginger and goji berry. Is cinnamon? Mm-hmm. Cinnamon? Don't you think so? Because the goji a gives you a, a little bit of sweetness and the, the goji gives you a little moistening action as well. Huh. But the ginger gives you the warmth okay. and the circulatory stimulation and the antispasmodic action. Mm. And also blending it with goji backs off the heat just a smidge. You know, because maybe ginger is a little warmer than cinnamon. They're, they're pretty close, but... Mm -hmm. okay. I, I'm advocating. That's what I... It's not like that was an answer I had in my back pocket because I didn't know you were going to talk about cinnamon, but... That's that's my answer. This is the game, folks. I propose it. I propose yeah. ginger and goji. We've, we've played this cinnamon. game on the we've played this game on the pod before, actually. Way back, uh, I did have to look this up beforehand. Okay, I don't know the numbers offhand, but way back in episode thirty, uh, we did an episode where we were talking about formulating absent friends, and we did tulsi and chamomile. Mm -hmm. Came up with some options for that. Should probably do that again but without listening back. Usually, you do know the numbers off the top of your head. Everybody who listens to the podcast knows next time. that normally you know the number. We would last it's time. pretty ridiculous. So, our last suggestions for you uh, <laughs> for things that we can do in response to the the drought and the pressures on the the plant harvests is to share your herbs with friends. Yes. Wait, yes! wait, how? Wait, wait. What am I going to do? First, I'm not supposed to hoard things. Now I'm supposed to give away my herbs. Yes. Just because these people are my friends. Yes, that's ah, right. I don't know about that's that. That's exactly what you should do. Are you sure? Yes. Listen, so it's hard. Honestly, it's hard not to have too much. So go through all your herbs right now. Anything that's older than a year. Tinctures, dry herbs, whatever. Anything that's older than a year, maybe you got too much of it. And so start thinking about what you could share. Or maybe you kind of like got really enamored in some other plant and so you kind of forgot that you had that stash. Okay, this is the chance now to really get into it and work with it. Especially because right now you might be making your herb order, order for the winter or you're harvesting things and you're realizing that you still have a little bit from last year or whatever. All of these are indications that it's time to share. And sharing also means swapping, right? Like you can exchange things, especially if your area had a really hard year for whatever, chamomile, whatever it was. And you have a friend who has lots of chamomile, but they don't have any Solomon seal. And you happen to have a lot of it. You can swap. This practice actually is as old as herbalism. Like trading herbs back and forth 
that's like the some of the <laughs> oldest trade that there was. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So it is an important part of being an herbalist. Um, and in fact, in our online community at, that's part of our school online, we have a student swap board. And this fall, we're going to be implementing a school-wide herb swap. Um, and so if you've ever participated in like a holiday cookie swap, um, it's going to be kind of like that. Uh, she was telling me this morning she has a whole vision. I do. I'm very excited about it. <laughs> um, so we're going to get people who want to do herb swaps together in groups and if you just want to swap one thing with one person, that's fine. If you have so much sumac that you infused in honey and now you have this really delicious sweet and sour sumac honey and you have tons of it and you want to share it with lots of people, we're going to have groups that are sharing like with all kinds of people. It's going to be so much fun. It'll be a way for you to make new friends and get to know plants that maybe you haven't worked with before, to share stuff that you have in abundance, to strengthen your own community network of herb friends. And your community network doesn't have to only be right next door to you. It can be people all over that you share with and people who support you. Um, that too is traditional in herbalism, right? Like. We have always shared herbs from far away. And so it's okay if you want to swap herbs with somebody who lives across the country from you. Um, it's part of the tradition. <laughs> so anyway, this, um, this whole thing is happening in our student community groups. And um, so if you are not a student in our online program yet, then start now. Um, I'm going to launch this in October, but we're going to start preparing for it now so that everybody can kind of be making their plans about what they want to swap. And you don't have to do this like through our online community thing. You're welcome to, you're invited to, but you don't have to, you can just do it with your own herb friends and just, just have a big community swap. And it can be one of the, like, it can be a barter. It can be a trade. It can be just bring a basket and just share like whatever there doesn't have to be any dollars involved at all or whatever kind of currency you have where you are um it can just be like we're all just bringing stuff and we're just trading and it's such a fun way it's fun if you're new to herbalism it's fun if you're old to herbalism it's fun if you're thinking about starting a business and you want to um, like really get some feedback and refine some of your formulas before you launch them. It's just, it's just fun. And maybe you'll make new friends that way too. Well, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So those are some suggestions from us. Uh, as, as, as always, it ends with find some community, build some community. <laughs> uh, this is the way that we survive together. Mm -hmm. Um, <clears throat> But yeah, again, you know, thinking about the impacts of drought, impacts of climate change more broadly uh, on the plants and then the, the ripple effect that that has throughout the ecosystem into the economic system and all the other uh, levels of abstraction in between. Right. <laughs> but we're, right. we're not um, like, victim isn't the word I want. We're not like prisoners to that. Um, because the systems of resilience that we build, the connections that we build with one another, the connections that we build with the plants, that is what survives us. Listen, humans have been going through troubling times forever. These are pretty big troubling times, but 
but the concept of getting through hard things together is not new. That is just as human as squirreling things away for the winter. Mm-hmm. And so all we need to do is just let that part out of us and, and let it grow. And it grows the more that we do it, the more that we practice it, the more that we come together and form alliances of support, you know, like ways that we can assist one another, ways that we can be there when we need things, whether that is a cup of tea and somebody to listen to a a sad story, whether it is a piece of cake, of herbal cake and celebration, whether it is, you know, everything in between. This is how, this is what humans do. This is what herbalists do. This is what we have always done. And we can just keep doing it. (laughs) See, we're not depressed here. Yeah. They did it. <laughs> the, the, the times are hard. The troubles are big. And humans are good at that, actually. <laughs> nice. I like it. All right. So we're going to be back next time. Uh, in our next episode, one of, the, one of the actions we suggested today as a response to these shifts was learn who's thriving. Uh, identifying and, and getting really excited about and really familiar with the resilient plants who live near you. But it occurs to us that maybe you're not quite sure how to go about doing that. Mm. Uh, so next time, that's what we're going to talk about. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. Until then, take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Drink some tea. Drink some tea. And uh, share tea with your friends. Yes, and that's how we will save the world. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye.